Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I think, I think uh, everybody who has uh, arrived has now got their tea and coffee and something to eat. Um, if you haven't, and if you're desperate to get something, there will be, as usual, a break halfway through about half, about half past one, quarter, uh, twenty to two. Um, welcome again to the Sunday Afternoon Philosophy Cafe, our second one of this year's West End Festival. I'm Brian. I'm a member of the church here at Hillhead Baptist Church. And on behalf of the church, a welcome to you as well. Um, our guest uh, here today is Dr. Andrew Haas. Andrew is a lecturer in religion at the School of Languages and Cultures and Religions at the University of Stirling. He's originally from Vancouver in Canada, as you will shortly hear when you hear him speak, uh, but spent a number of years here in Glasgow in the 1990s uh, when he was researching his doctorate at the University of Glasgow. Andrew then spent five years as visiting assistant professor in the Honours College of the University of Houston, Texas, before returning to Scotland in 2003 to join the staff at the University of Stirling. He's co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Lit Literature and Theology and is European editor of a related quarterly magazine called Literature and Theology, which is part of the Oxford Journal's publishing imprint. The journal, amongst other things, encourages new thinking about how religion is embedded in culture. Now, recently, Andrew was one of the uh, academics who teamed up uh, with the think tank Ecclesia, which some of you may be aware of. It's a belief in values think tank that quite often gets into the media. And the reason was to promote new, a new research agenda and a blog entitled Critical Religion, which aims to put hot topics under careful spotlight. Andrew... Um, who personally researches uh, the intersection of religion with philosophy, theory and the arts uh, at his university, explained it this way. The impact of religion and belief in the world today is a huge talking point. The purpose of the Critical Religion Initiative is to build positive bridges between specialists and those who write and make policy and think about issues at a more general level. Now, an early entry on this new blog site by Andrew it was entitled... What is a university for? And that is the title of this year's second Philosophy Cafe. Please give a very warm West End Festival welcome to Andrew Haas. Thank you very much, Brian. Well, the university is in a state. And you do not need to be a student presently at a university to be aware of this, nor do you need to be working in the halls of academia to be aware of this. You simply have to turn on your television or your radio to any news item, and chances are you will hear some kind of ruckus about the state of the university and the funding issues that are going along with it. In fact, if you're a denizen here in Glasgow, you will be aware of near riots at at least two universities here in the city. Near riots, some might actually say riotous confrontations with police. First at the University of Glasgow, where student demonstrations were confronted with police action. Uh, and then not too long ago at the University of Strathclyde, where again, student confrontation and police led to uh, injuries, arrests, and uh, all sorts of uh, name-calling. So this is a very hot, passionate topic 
that is right here on our doorstep. Here in the West End, with the university so close, we are patently aware of the difficulties that the university is undergoing and the controversies that are taking place under the name of uh, policies that are coming from the, within the university and policies that are being imposed upon the university from the outside. So the question before us needs to be, what is the university for? If we're going to get to the bottom of all this confrontation, all this passion and heated discussion that goes on between students and those uh, running the universities, that go on between staff and management, that go on between the public, you, and the government, we need to address this fundamental question, what is the university for? Now, the issues that the university are being hammered out on right now are the ones that hit the media most evidently. These issues have to do with funding cuts, have to do with staff reductions, or have to do with wholesale departmental reductions. That is, we see disciplines within universities now being under threat or being excised altogether from the curriculum. And this all makes us scratch our head. It begs the question what the university is for to begin with. And that's the question I feel that is not being fully addressed in all the media hype that we get around student uh, fees, tuition fees, and around uh, the cuts coming from the government. No one is really asking the fundamental question of what a university should be for in the 21st century. Now, there seems to be a kind of working assumption that comes from the government, especially down to us here, about the purpose that the university needs to have within the 21st century. But that is not a purpose necessarily shared by everyone working within the university, and I would probably say not shared by everyone in the public necessarily. If we are going to pose the question what a university is for, we need to get to the very root of the assumptions that are going on from on high now about what the university should be in our culture in the 21st century. And that's what I want to just begin to unpackage here uh, this afternoon and then have a chance, hopefully, uh, to discuss this with you as the public some of you may be in university, some maybe have come from university, some may be working or studying there now. Some of you may just have an uh, uh, invested interest in it, intellectually or otherwise. It's an absolutely critical issue that we need to get to the bottom of. And I hope to further that a bit in our discussion today. Now, colleagues of mine and I have been wrestling with this issue for a long time. 
And one of the difficulties that we found is that we have never had the space within the university itself to address the fundamental question of the raison d'etre of the university as it has developed in late modern society. We simply go about the actions of doing university things within the university, teaching the courses we need to teach, doing the research we need to do, administrating when we need to administrate, and increasingly fundraising when we need to fundraise. And all of that activity, which is becoming more and more uh, of a demand upon us, as those of us working within, has in many ways pushed out the possibility to discuss the question before us now. What ought to be the ultimate goal or purpose for a university? So my colleagues and I have been increasingly frustrated that we never get the chance to actually discuss this amongst ourselves. After all, we're the academics who should know what a university should be for. We are the ones who should be bringing to the table the issues and the questions. There's no table existing right now for that kind of roundtable discussion. I was immensely pleased to find out that some of my close colleagues had decided most recently to inject within the university in a way that I thought was particularly appropriate the the question about the nature of the university and the problems it faces now. And the context most recently, some of you may have participated in yourself, was the Gifford Lectures of Glasgow. Now, as you know, the Gifford Lectures operate on four uh, of the old universities within Scotland. Uh, And this year, they decided not to have a featured speaker with a series of lectures, but to have a panel of experts come around uh, a table and begin to address the question of the nature and the purpose of the university in the 21st century. Out of interest, was anyone at the Gifford Lecture, uh, or panel, we might say, about three weeks ago? Anyone there? Only a couple. Okay. I was extremely pleased to see that the question was finally starting to be debated. But everyone, and I talked with with my colleagues afterwards, uh, colleagues on the panel themselves, everyone agreed at that point that it was simply a starting point. That the issues raised there were only issues that were exposing the problem more than trying to actually deal with any solution. Solutions are going to be difficult to come by in terms of um, creating some kind of of, uh, viable way forward for the university right now. But at least we began that discussion. And so today, I want to use this as as a time when we can maybe even further that. Many of you don't work within a university necessarily, and we're not in here to find out more what we call academies, which is a great uh, ironic term of the language academics tend to use that is so uh, 
difficult that most people can't understand it. So even the term academies itself is one of these terms we tend to throw around without necessarily knowing what it means. All it means is we have a specialized language. And this language uh, we trade in quite easily, but not necessarily everyone else does. I want to take away some of the academies to this discussion and open it up in a way that maybe all of us can begin dialoguing together with. Now, from the Gifford Lectures, um, there were some interesting uh, ideas coming forth in terms of the problems that we all face, the insurmountable issues that we may have to resign ourselves to, uh, but very little by way of solutions. And I'm not going to pretend I can come here today with solutions myself. The issues are extremely complex, and they penetrate all sectors of society, not just government policy, and not just those within the academic circles themselves, but everyone. Because what I feel is at stake here is that the question what a university for spills well beyond the domain of the academic halls itself and begins to ask fundamental questions about the nature of society and citizens as a whole. And I hope to show this, just even give us a taste of why the question actually extends to some of the most fundamental questions we can ask about ourselves as human beings living in this world and about the societies we try and create for ourselves to live as harmoniously as possible together. So it's not simply a question about education. It goes beyond that, I want to suggest. Well, how are we going to come at this then? Let me just give you a quick background of the university so we're all clear about where the modern university has come from. I then want to just suggest what some of the changes have taken, have, that have taken place recently suggest for us um, as we think about uh, the development of the university within the last five or so decades. I then want to highlight to you what I think are the key problems facing the university now. And I will end very briefly with some suggestions of the way that we might think about a reconception of the university's uh, operations and the university's uh, raison d'etre. And I will do that within about 15 minutes. Okay. Now, we know that the university has medieval roots. In fact, they are connected with the church itself. The university arose from the monastic orders where knowledge, texts, language were being both preserved and cultivated within the confines of a highly isolated um, uh, religious environment. These monastic orders, the scolae monasticae of Latin terms, began as early as the 6th century. 
But it wasn't until about the 11th century where we began to see of a more formal organization that we understand as a university now. And the term itself, university, began to arise. The first and most prominent one was uh, in around 1088 in Bologna in, in, in Italy, where the establishment was very much connected with the church in order to uh, address not just theological issues, but as we know, uh, theology was necessarily tied up with all the other disciplines that we now segregate away from theology, science, medicine, grammar, mathematics, arts, and so on. By the 12th century, there were many universities spotted around continental Europe which were now key centers of learning, particularly for those who had come from or continued to work within ecclesiastical structures. The 12th century gave rise to what we uh, know as scholasticism, this strange uh, world of of, uh, theological interest tied with Catholic theology, we will say Catholic now because we are post-Protestant division, but of course there was no division at that point. All knowledge was wrapped up in a universal understanding, a Catholic small c understanding, so that what the scholastics were trying to work out was a unified, homogeneous sense of the way we understand the world. And we get that even in the term university itself. I think what that that word is made up of is the universe, a single turning uh, understanding of a cosmos that turns around in an entire homogeneous way. The university. It's a universe unto itself. And scholastics, such as Aquinas, one of the most famous, was working out uh, the ways of knowledge that would accord with this whole cosmic universe, integrated organically together, and that can be studied in an organic way. Those are the roots from our European heritage which give us the term theology and the general structure of of the university itself. the university as we know it today is really more a product, and this, this is what we need to, to bear in mind here, more a product of much later developments, particularly in the period that we call the Enlightenment. And here I want to point three very important junctures historically where the development of what we understand the university now has taken place. The first two are in Germany. And we, we should begin with a philosopher whose name you might have heard of before, Immanuel Kant. Now, late in this great German uh, philosopher's period of his own um, uh, career, he wrote a book called The Conflict of the Faculties. This was in, actually in 1798, where he was very concerned that the faculties within the university of his time were becoming confused and contentious with each other. And Kant felt it very important that we make a fundamental distinction amongst the faculties of study 
within a university. And he divided them into two. One we called the higher professions, and the other he called the lower profession, or lower uh, faculties. Why he said higher and lower is a little less clear. More clear is the way that he understood the purpose of these two different faculties. The higher one were the professional-oriented disciplines, the ones that led to particular professions that you could go out and earn a distinct salary from. And here we're talking uh, theology, so the ecclesiastical structure, law, and medicine. So in 1798, those were the key professions of the day, the white-collar professions, of course, we would call them now. What about the lower faculties? Well, these were ones that didn't necessarily lead into a profession. These were the ones that you would study for their own sake, knowledge for their own sake. And here we would have something like history, philosophy, pure mathematics, or the arts. Now, in Kant's day, these higher and lower faculties were becoming confused. Kant wanted to make a clear distinction between the two, and he felt it very important as a philosopher that the lower faculties become radically distinct from the professional ones. Why? Because Kant had a very clear understanding of reason and the purpose of reason, and he thought reason should be studied for its own sake, not towards some kind of profession. We need to study reason for its own sake, and all the attendant disciplines that come with that reason. Philosophy, he would start with up there first, the great queen of the sciences, but then he would move on to, to other areas like history, the arts, um, even mathematics in its pure sense, which doesn't have a directly applied application. That's what he meant by pure. It's not directly applied to anything. So he wanted to separate these two. Now, for him, the term liberal, when we use the, this phrase now, liberal arts, liberal meant liberated from external influence outside the university. And this is a fundamentally key factor that we need to keep in mind of the history of the university. What Kant was interested in was keeping out ecclesiastical, industrial, and governmental influence from the lower faculties and their disciplines. He did not want the government or the church or business interfering with the agendas of philosophy or history or any of the art subjects, um, and on and on it goes. He felt they should be preserved with their own separate autonomy. Now, the higher professional ones, well, naturally, they need some influence. And if you're going to do law, you're going to need governmental influence. You're going to need juridical influence, the whole structures of law and society. You're going to need uh, medical influence if you're going to be studying medicine. That's clear. Not so if you're going to study theology or religion. Uh, sorry, uh, religion in, the, in a broader sense. Not so if you're going to study uh, philosophy 
or uh, now many of the, the other uh, arts and social sciences had not yet been developed in Kant's time. So if we talk about psychology or sociology, anthropology, those are disciplines that had not yet been developed. But he would have put those under that same category. This is what Kant meant by liberal. When we talk about the liberal arts, he meant separated away from the uh, other influences of, of societal authority. And that's a key movement because the next stage in this history comes in the early um, 19th century, so just about a decade after Kant wrote this book, when another German, Wilhelm von Humboldt, decided he would start the University of Berlin on these very principles. And it is that University of Berlin which really supplies the model for the modern university today. And we really can't understand what the university has come from unless we, we, we appreciate fully the University of Berlin and its history. Now, what did Humboldt want to do here? He had three key aspects here that he wanted to deal with. First was a unity of teaching and research. That's the first principle. Lectures should have complete freedom to go away and lecture on the, their own material that they're researching. And then pass that on as a kind of master to disciple, pass that on to their, their own students. That model, he felt, was going to be supply knowledge its greatest reach. And if you go to Germany today, you will still see a very, very strong relationship in, in German universities between a kind of uh, master-disciple uh, connection, in, especially in the postgraduate studies in the university. So that was his first point. His second point was uh, the freedom to teach whatever you wanted. You should not be influenced by what the church thinks you should teach or business thinks you should teach or government thinks you should teach. You should be able to teach whatever you feel is important. The final principle was that every university should have self-governance. They should not be structured in a way that necessarily ties them to extrinsic authorities and powers. Now you can see these are all related. So unity of teaching and research, freedom to teach whatever you feel is important, and self-governance. This was von Humboldt's key principles for the University of Berlin, Berlin and it is from those principles that we have developed what we understand the university in today's world. Now, the third most uh, significant historical node uh, is on our shores here in Britain um, or our neighboring uh, shores in the Republic of Ireland. And this is with John Henry Newman's The Idea of a University in, uh, published in 1852. Now, Cardinal Newman had this idea that... Uh, he needed to pitch the possibility of a specific Catholic university to his uh, Catholic higher-ups in Ireland. And so he wrote this treatise 
about what he felt were the most important aspects for developing a university. Now, he picks up from the University of Berlin's model this idea of autonomy, but particularly what he wants to develop is a slightly different sense of the notion of liberal. The liberal arts for uh, Kant and Humboldt was liberated from uh, external societal forces. For Newman, the idea of liberal was the liberating quality of the material you were studying itself that would then develop a more cultured mind, which Newman saw as a very fundamentally Catholic principle anyways. And he develops this in his treatise. Listen, these are the words that he uses to describe what he means by the liberal. A habit of mind is formed, he says, which lasts through life, of which the attributes are freedom, equitableness, calmness, moderation, and wisdom or in what a former discourse I have ventured to call a philosophical habit. So here Newman has this idea that the university is this place where you cultivate your mind. And the best way to do this is through a very close relationship with uh, the student and the teacher. So he was less interested in the kind of ivory tower approach that von Humboldt eventually developed, where the research goes away and they work in their little isolation up there looking at all these very arcane ideas and, and, and formula, and then maybe pass it on down to the student eventually. Uh, for Newman, this, this very close integration between teaching and, and uh, learning within the classroom environment was more... Uh, as you can see, a kind of very ecclesiastical way of approaching education. That you develop, you culture a kind of flock or a congregation, your students. And he married this very neatly with uh, a Catholic mindset. So it's those three historical elements which are absolutely crucial in thinking how the university has developed in today's terms. I don't think we can really begin to understand what a university is for until we see where it's come from and how we might deal with that past or that heritage. Now, are these principles that we must retain? What has taken place since then that creates the unique university environment that we have now? Well, we know that in Britain especially, there was a development of universities, particularly along the, the University of Berlin's model. But as we go through the 20th century, we begin to see the kind of division taking place between, on the one hand, elite schools, your Oxfords and Cambridges and St. Andrews of the world, and then your schools which were less to do with knowledge for knowledge's sake, and more to do with knowledge for applied sake. And particularly around the 1960s in Britain, we had this promulgation of the idea of a polytechnic school, where as a college you would then develop very specific applied skills. And so polytechnic colleges sprouted up all over 
And it wasn't just Britain, it was North America as well. And so we had these sort of divisions. You could go do a polytechnical degree, or you could go do your elite school degree and learn knowledge for knowledge's sake. Something then happened in the last 20, 30, 40 years that has shifted that division yet again. And it's what we could call a knowledge-based economy. What has transpired in society now is a shift away from the more traditional notions of industry, mining, manufacturing, and so forth, towards knowledge required that is services a particular area that is fundamentally grounded in a, some kind of notion of knowledge that then can be applied. And it is that shift in society which begins to change the nature of the university. Because as knowledge-based economies become more prominent within the West, governments start to see that the university becomes the key place in supplying the workers for this knowledge. And that the university becomes more and more integrated within the overall economic agenda of any particular nation. So that the more a nation becomes knowledge-based in its economy, the more the university is expected to deliver the workforce for that knowledge base. So in the last 20, 30 years especially, you begin to see governments keenly, keenly invested in the university as an important driver of the economy. And this is the language that we now have inherited from probably three, four, five different succeeding governments since Thatcher. The language that the university is one, not the only, but certainly a key principal engine of our economy. Now, most of you might hear that language and say, fine, that sounds perfectly legitimate. Sure, that's what a university should be doing. It should be supplying workers to our very robust knowledge-based economy. We lead the world in many ways of knowledge-based economies. We lead the world. Therefore, our universities should be supplying our leading workforce um, and developing all the time this, this knowledge base that we have understood. But I want you to just stop there for a moment and just realize what has taken place. The university as an engine of the economy. Now go back to Kant. What was Kant's fundamental problem with the influence of business, church, government? Is that it begins to set the agenda for knowledge. So now we come to a time where we are a knowledge-based country or a knowledge-based Western civilization. And everyone thinks, right, knowledge, that's great. That sounds wonderful. But what is that knowledge? It's a very different kind of knowledge of what Kant understood or Humboldt 
understood, or even Newman. It's a very different kind of knowledge. The knowledge we have now that services our economies is instrumental knowledge. Knowledge whose main goal is to apply itself in very quantifiable terms. The knowledge that Kant was interested in was far less quantifiable. It was qualified by various disciplines and discourses. But it wasn't quantifiable in the way that we understand that now. So when we think about knowledge in our modern world, we are handed down, we are presupposing a certain kind of knowledge. And if the universities are for that knowledge, then the universities have to to conform themselves to that presupposition. What I'd like us to be thinking about here is just to stop for a moment and say, ah, right, that's one kind of knowledge. Is that the only kind of knowledge? Are there other kinds of knowledge that we could develop? Now, if we take the paradigm of the knowledge-based economy and superimpose that upon the university, what we have seen then is a certain democratization of the higher education, whereby it is expected or it is idealized that everyone should go to university because that is the best thing for the economy. It drives the economy forward. It makes us a wealthy, prosperous nation. And that language sounds very credible. However, it is not the only way to construe the issue. Its credibility lies within a paradynamic structure of a certain kind of knowledge. But I want to suggest to you that there are other kinds of knowledges out there. And the language we hear now, university is the, as a engine to drive the economy, is only a small portion of what we could and how we could construe knowledge. And therein lies the tension and the problems for today. So I want to just very quickly, my 15 minutes has gone up, I realize. So let me very quickly tell you where I think the problems are right now. And we can unpackage this a little as we talk a little later. First problem, and these are all going to be interconnected, is, is the economization of the university. University is the engine of the economy. Every government if you listen to their language, takes this as a working assumption. That the the university should be there to drive forward the language. I could quote many different um, government spokesmen on this, whether it's past, it's really started very, very um, uh, patently with with Tony Blair's government, but it's went through Brown and is is in the present coalition, and you even hear it up, up here in Scotland with the SNP. Here's David Lammy, uh, the previous minister under Gordon Brown's uh, administration for higher education. This is typical. I could quote millions of ones, but this is typical. I'm proud there are now more students than ever before in our history attending university. We maintain our commitment to the importance of higher education 
precisely because we know how essential its success is to opportunity and to successful future economic growth. Economization leads to the second problem I feel that's, that's overwhelming our university, and that's corporatization. The university is more and more understood as a business, is more and more understood in terms of business models, is more and more run under business or masters of business administration uh, executives. And when it's cast within that mold, it will naturally think of the student as a customer. And so the student then is there as uh, buying a certain commodity. What is that commodity? It's knowledge that's going to supply a certain socioeconomic standing once you have a degree in place. And if that's why you're coming to university, then you think of the corporate model as the kind of machinery which inputs the, the student and the output on the other side is that they then become uh, someone who can drive the economy forward by reaching a certain middle class and above middle class standard of living. Concomitant with this corporatization is then what is really dogging the operations of the university, what I would call the managerialization of the university. Now, this is a very fancy word, but simply means that the idea of running a corporation requires a certain management structure that is inherent to corporate mentality. And that functions usually as top-down management, where staff is understood as functionaries into the overall system, and the goal is to maximize efficiency. That's the goal of the university, uh, managerialism, to maximize efficiency. Why are we hearing so many cuts in the university right now? Precisely to maximize efficiency and to get this running as streamlined as possible so that we have no fat and the budget lines can be as lean and as efficient as possible. Uh, I picked up a wonderful quote. I can't claim these words, but I will just simply throw these out to you. An easily governed university is no university at all. An easily governed university is no university at all. I'm going to reserve the bulk of my possible solutions for uh, our discussion later should you care, and I hope you do. Uh, but I will just point them out what I think a university ought to be for. I began by saying that no one is debating or has only started to debate the fundamental questions. In other words, the questions of cutbacks and the questions of government reductions in HE uh, funding are not the key problems to the university. They are symptoms. The key problem to the university right now 
is an identity crisis. No one, even the academics, know what it's for. We have a basis of which the modern university has arisen in a model, Kantian, Humboldtian, however you want to construe it, Newmanian, whatever, that is fundamentally different from the kind of economic climate and agenda that is being set for us now. How do we begin to reconcile these differences? I think there are some ways, and I'm going to tease you with these. I think we need to think of four different ways of reconceiving the paradigm for the university and our understanding of knowledge. I'm going to just spell them out to you, tease you with that, and stop. Heritage, cultivation, critique, and creativity. Heritage, cultivation, critique, and creativity. Those four principles, I suggest, can be unpackaged in a way that might begin, merely begin, to help us rethink what a university is for. If you want to unpackage these later, we can. If you want to discuss, challenge, comment upon my particular reading of the university and its heritage, I would welcome your dialogue. Thank you.